This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Happy 4th of July, folks. We're taking a few days off, so please enjoy the best of Mayor Culpa with our guest, Soledad O'Brien. But first, I wanted to say a few words about last week's testimony by Cassidy Hutchinson before the January 6th committee. It's a true game-changer. Is there sufficient evidence for a seditious conspiracy criminal case related to Mr. Trump's actions and inaction on January 6th, like those brought against the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and their leaders? My good friend Norm Eisen argues in the New York Times that the evidence is powerful, but it is not yet sufficient to overcome the very high bar of proving, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Mr. Trump agreed with the rioters to attack the Capitol. But the new testimony advances proving other possible crimes, like obstruction of Congress, with Mr. Trump's role in the violence as the culmination of that scheme. The accumulated evidence, capped by Ms. Hutchinson's testimony, will again raise another possible legal obstacle for Mr. Trump. Disqualification from any future federal office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Known as the Disqualification Clause, the provision applies to anyone who took an oath to support the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or gave aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Just as the Watergate hearings, the 9-11 Commission hearings, and other congressional proceedings were artifacts of their time, these hearings have been structured to fit neatly into our streaming era. I mean, think of it as TikTok Watergate. Ms. Hutchinson just became the face of it. In the background of Hutchinson's testimony, though, are the ceaseless attempts to discredit her testimony and Hutchinson herself as an unreliable witness. Look, if anybody knows that fucking playbook, it's me. The playbook here is vintage Trump. Again, I know it well. I was both the perpetrator of these tactics and in the end, a victim of them as well. First, they shower you with love and attention, offering you assurances that staying loyal to Trump would be better than crossing him. Meanwhile, Trump or someone close to Trump blasts the shit out of those who offer testimony against them in bluntly personal terms, offering a clear example to others of the consequences of stepping out of line. This in turn unleashes the crazies, death threats and other frightening personal attacks come flooding forth. It's all calibrated to place maximum pressure on whoever is about to cross the former president. These are tried and true Trump tactics. He never changes his playbook because it's worked so well for him in the past. He's a fucking mob boss, and the messages he delivers are calibrated to skirt the law and leave no fingerprints. Trust me, there is no way to adequately describe in words the feeling that overcomes your entire being when the President of the United States places you in his crosshairs. If Pat Cipollone does indeed cooperate with the committee's subpoena, we could be seeing the first nail in Trump's coffin come down in dramatic fashion. Cipollone knew all along what was happening was not only wrong, but illegal. His concern that Trump would be charged with every crime imaginable is now coming into stark focus. So that's it for now, folks. Just a few thoughts on what's to come next week. 
So my conversation with Soli Dad O'Brien took place on January 6th of 2021 as Trump stood on stage at the Ellipse and told the crowd to fight like hell. With one eye kept on the day's unfolding events, which grew more frightening and violent by the minute, we spoke about Trump's big lie and what was unfolding before our eyes. So let's go now to that conversation. So, Soli Dad, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, the world right now is upside down. The United States is certainly upside down. Lord knows what the heck is going on there in Washington. But today on Twitter, Jake Tapper displayed the following text from a GOP operative. It may just be better instead of recriminations. We tacitly acknowledge we made a deal with the devil for four years. Be proud of what we got out of it. Supreme Court of the United States justices, federal judges, tax reform, ending non-conservatism and fiscal austerity, and move on. In response, you tweeted the following, seemed to lack a certain sense of accountability for that deal. That did a lot of damage, so very likely move on will be a big obstacle to overcome. Discuss with me how you believe that the GOP will move on after Donald Trump. Do the double losses in Georgia now spell the end of his grip on the party? Now that his presence in these campaigns is viewed more as a liability than a necessity? What's your thoughts? Yeah, listen, I have long thought, and, and I think we saw it on TV actually earlier, as much as people would say, hey, listen, Trump is a ratings getter. At some point, he really did not become that. And you could see even the folks on Fox saying, thank you, Mr. President. We know you're very busy. You probably need to run, Mr. President. And you'd be like, no, I still could talk. So uh, I think he's he's gone from being not a ratings win to being literally toxic. And a lot of that is because, as you probably know better than anybody, he can't really stay on message, right? So you look at what was brought into Georgia to support, and he couldn't, he couldn't even manage to get, I think he called Kelly Karen at some point couldn't like couldn't even manage to do the very basics that are required for going and supporting somebody's campaign. I, I think the more interesting issue for me has always been why? Like what is the what is the appeal? You know, what is the appeal of that deal with the devil? I, I think that phrase from an operative, it's very operative sounding, isn't it? Right? Like, yeah, hey, we made a deal with the devil, we just move on. I mean, I think for 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 people, and I think politicians across the board talk about, you know, what drives them morally and the things that they care about, um, you know, who they are as human beings and character. And maybe, maybe, maybe all that's just bullshit. And I'm naive. And you know, I used to believe that some people, you know, even people I didn't agree with had like a, a moral character and why they did what they did. And I think this operative is just explaining, listen, we, we, we made a deal with the devil, we got some stuff out of it, and now we're going to try to move on. I don't understand why someone who's so disgusting and represent reprehensible in so many different ways um, has such an interesting grip on the party, who's also not even smart. Like you can't say, you know what, brilliant dude, or there's something redeeming. And you you do you answer that for me. Why? What is what is the the magic thing that makes Lindsey Graham fall over? What is the thing that makes Marco Rubio tweet these uh, phrases from the Bible? What what makes Josh Hawley who at two hours ago was waving at these protesters who've now stormed the Capitol, uh, actually, who's a, a thoughtful, intelligent uh, lawyer, actually decide he's going to challenge uh, electoral results. I, I just don't understand that. Like, none of those people are particularly stupid. 
Um, Diamond and Silk, I understand. I totally get where they're coming from. They're not smart. They're going to you know, go where the money is. But explain to me the other people because I honestly don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it either. But then again, I tried to put myself somewhere into that category between smart and stupid. Right. I certainly didn't go to Harvard Law, nor did I graduate magna cum laude. Right. So I let's just say that I, I'm probably not on the highest end of the intelligence spectrum. But I fell for Donald Trump's cult as well. There is a cult of a celebrity power that somehow becomes intoxicating when you are within the stanchions of this VIP inner circle. And somebody like Lindsey Graham or Marco Rubio or uh, or Hawley, they've always been outsiders, right? You probably have to look back into their past, into their history, and you'll find that despite being senators or members of, of the House, they were probably always considered like outsiders. And somehow the touch of the light from Donald Trump brought them into that that stanchion, that VIP executive club that they just didn't want to let go. Now, we also have to understand that many of them are fucking opportunists and they're users, just like, you know, Marco Rubio, just like Jim Jordan, who just got the Medal of Freedom. It should be more like the Medal of Being a Fucking Asshole. I mean, let's be serious about it. Or Devin Nunes, here's something that nobody knows. Many years ago, I was tasked by Mr. Trump to go to Fresno, California, off of a deal which was called the Running Horse Development Project. Now, unless my memory is completely shot, I believe at the time that Devin Nunes was the head of the city council. And Devin Nunes, if it's the right guy, single-handedly destroyed us obtaining that thousand acres and building not just a... Um, PGA style golf course, but as well as a veterans administration property. I just thought it was really, truly interesting that this is a guy who has been sucking up to Donald Trump like nobody's business and also gets the Medal of Freedom. He, he should get the second medal of, free, of being a fucking asshole. You know, but why? I don't know. And, and these apologies, these excuses, oh, I made a deal with the devil. You know that they're all fake. It's just a way to explain your way out of a question or a situation. Oh, yeah, it wasn't my fault. The devil made me do it. That's, that's the problem. Nobody holds our representatives responsible for the things that they are responsible for. And it's really on us now, especially now that we have the House, right? We have the Senate and we have the White House. It's really time that Democrats start to show the entire country, not just the Democratic Party. Do the exact opposite that Donald Trump did. And Joe Biden will be a president for all Americans, not just his party or his specific supporting base. That's my opinion. Why do you think the Capitol was so easily breached by people who are clearly, to me, it looks like armed in some capacity? Well, they were unprepared. There's no other way to describe it. And I'm shocked because we have the greatest police, the, the Capitol Police, the D.C. police, the Secret Service. I mean, this was, to me, it reminded me of like the movie White House Down. I mean, this was absolutely crazy watching them storm the Capitol. Nobody should ever 
be able to do something like that. I find it so disrespectful to our constitution, to the democracy, to our understanding of democracy. The fact that these people even had the balls to do it, they should be locked up. They should be charged. And Donald Trump should be charged as well for inciting a riot because that's exactly what he did. He knew exactly the bells to, to, you know, the dog whistle to blow in order to get these sycophantic supporters that really don't think for themselves. He knew exactly what to do to push their buttons to get them to storm that Capitol. And they knew what was going to happen. Why we were unprepared, I don't have an answer for it. But fortunately, I understand there was no damage that was done to the property. Um, there were people that were arrested. But right now, especially since we're controlling <laughs> the, the House, the Senate, and soon the White House, these charges should 100% you know, be brought back. That it's beyond despicable what the president did today. Let, let's move on to something else here. This morning, you retweeted Michelle Norris, who wrote, As y'all wake up, don't sleep on the role the WNBA played in Georgia race. Warnock was polling below 10% when the Atlanta Dream started wearing his name in response to co-owner Kelly Leffler's condemnation of the Black Lives Movement. Can you walk my listeners who weren't following Georgia day to day how this all unfolded? Sure, although I wasn't following Georgia day to day either. Um, yeah, Warnock was polling around 9%. And as you know, uh, Kelly Loeffler, who's a part owner of the Dream, really uh, had a lot of clashes with her own, um, in a way, employees, right? The Dream, the, the players technically work for her. And so... It's very interesting. I've been impressed by the WNBA uh, women because I think, um, again, we were talking about sort of moral courage. You know, and here women, don't, they're not making the money the men make. They don't have the fame. I'm sure you could not name for me five female WNBA <laughs> stars. You couldn't do it. Um, I couldn't probably do it either. Uh, so they just don't have that. With all due respect, Soledad, I couldn't name five in the NBA. Either. So <laughs> I, <didn't> <laughs> I like to watch basketball. I'm not a fan of any one specific team. So, so you have these people who don't have a very big platform, right? And they certainly don't have the the cushion of a lot of money and a lot of fame to be able to basically stand up to their employer who was very aggressively against uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And she's also just a hideous person, it seems. And, um, and, and because they started supporting him very aggressively and openly, and every time there was a camera on them, uh, people were like, oh, Reverend Warnock, who's that? And he got a lot of attention and a lot of traction. And as you know, now he has won the election uh, and beaten um, the former now Senator Loeffler. So um, I think that what I love about that story is that here are people who did take a big risk, right? This is their livelihoods and livelihoods where they don't make $50 million a year. Uh, and they were able to decide that something was more important. And you actually see that in the WNBA a lot. These women are always like standing up and putting their neck out for those things. They're really very aggressive and very consistent and very brave uh, in a way that you often don't see a lot of other athletes doing it. So I've really been um, impressed by them and uh, and very supportive of what they do. So yeah, they really, I mean, they get a ton of credit. And of course, now, um, uh, Stacey Abrams and uh, Reverend Warnock were are friendly and she helped his campaign as well. So that obviously also helped elevate what he was able to do. But But they definitely played a big role in what happened. 
The kids are getting so big. Yeah, can't believe how fast Mark is growing. Before we know it, they'll be moving out and heading to college. Well, first they'll need to learn to play in the sand and not eat it. Ryan, Ryan, your kids are growing fast. Start saving for their education with the tax-advantaged U-Fund College Investing Plan. Learn more at fidelity.com slash U-Fund. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Before investing, consider the plan's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a fact kit. Read it carefully. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE, SIPC. Right. So right now, people who are storming the Capitol, they're storming the Capitol with nooses and Confederate flags. And I I guess, you know, I mean, I'm not sure you could be any more clear about the message you're trying to send when you do that. Right. If you're you're storming the Capitol and some of these people aren't from the South and don't have great granddaddies who fought in the Civil War, uh, they're just holding on to the, 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 the Confederate flag. So I'm so curious why. I mean, I covered Donald Trump as a reporter in the 80s, so I really have covered him for a while. Um, but I, I guess I just never understood why he, and I think it, his obviously his family does too, embraces white people who are overtly white supremacists. You know, historically, as you know, most most politicians, right, the minute someone becomes overtly racist or overtly a member of the KKK or overtly a, a member of a white supremacy group, usually politicians are like, mm let me just step over here a little bit and distance themselves. And I've always wondered why Donald Trump hasn't done, you know, and, and I don't think the answer is because he's a racist is enough. I mean, I think he's a bigot, but you know, most people who even are racist know enough not to do that. Why why do you think he has not distanced himself? Because Donald Trump is a racist. There is absolutely no other way to describe it. So is Don Jr. He's even worse than his father. Things that he had said over the years while I was president, they're just racist. What they like is the status quo, right? White is right. That's their, that's their mentality. Now, it, they have no problem with black people living where black people live as long as you don't come into my neighborhood. They're just fine with it. And in their minds, they believe that that proves that they're not racist, right? Why is this? white woman dating a black man. Why is this white man dating a black woman? Well, it's probably unnatural. These are the things that Donald Trump thinks. So if they're walking around with a noose, what does it affect him? So what? What does it have to do with me? Why do I care? It's he can, He's allowed to think whatever he wants. You see, that's the problem with Donald Trump and you nailed it, Soledad, when you said Donald Trump is ignorant and he's arrogant. And that's a really shitty combination when you're the president of the United States of America, because your voice matters. It matters from the child that's just beginning to understand words to the person that's on their, their last breath. And it's not a joke because he doesn't care. And he's willing to use that any way that he can. So if that's his support, why would I fight with my supporters? Whatever they want to do is okay. It doesn't matter. No, it does matter, Donald, you dumbass. It does matter. All right? It matters to not just to not just the people who you are belittling, right? It matters to all Americans because you have created a, a country that is now more divided than we have been, at least in my lifetime. And it's it's a shame. Because he could, as the president, he could do so much more. He certainly could have done a whole lot better. I mean, he shitted up everything from the economy now to the pandemic to you name it. I mean, for God's sakes, and I ask people this all the time. 
Donald Trump was so fast to run out and to enforce the um, Production Defense Act and have Ford build ventilators. Now, that's great. My understanding at the time is that we needed ventilators. We didn't have enough. And he did what, you know, his powers allow him to do. But wouldn't it make more sense now that we actually have a vaccine, one that the FDA has determined has like a 90% efficacy rate? Wouldn't it make sense to now, under the same act, to go ahead to all manufacturers that have the machinery and produce just one vaccine? Why do we need five? Why do you need a third, a fourth, a fifth, right? Instead of just taking the one that works, because the FDA said it has a 90% efficacy rate, why not just take that, mass produce it, and instead of having 2.8 million inoculations, why do we not have 100 million already done? That's what somebody who gives a shit would do. That's what somebody who has people around him that give a shit would do. All he cares about is ensuring that his base stays strong so that when he leaves the White House, and he does know he's leaving on the 20th, he won't even be in Washington on the 20th. In that way, they continue to support him, which will be financial through a Trump news network. That's all he's thinking. He's thinking about himself, which is his favorite topic, and nothing more. So whether or not another 3,400 people die today, so what? Right. And not to mention people that he knows, people who supported him and supported him with millions of dollars, passed away of covid. Oh, it happens. It happens. That's the problem when you have somebody who lacks empathy. And that's Donald Trump. But I also saw the dad. I want to talk for a moment about Stacey Abrams, who you brought up now, her 10 year dream to flip Georgia was the result of an incredible grassroots movement, none that I've ever seen, but anything like that before, that valued and really put a serious value on community organizing over top-down politicking from the National Party. And that really shows the power of incremental progress over big money campaigning. Now, of course, we all know Georgia had an enormous amount of money that was spent, but not when it came to this grassroots movement. Discuss with me, if you would, how you view Stacey Abrams' stature in the party and where you see her going in the future, because I see big things for her. Yeah, I do, too. And I, I think if she wants to be governor, I think that's I mean, if that she still wants to be governor, then that would be certainly an interesting thing for her to be pursuing. Um, what I think Stacey Abrams really did, which was fascinating, uh, you often see in politics people search out the people who vote, right? They know their voters, they go and they canvass them and they, they have lists that are of voters, known voters, maybe people who've dropped off the rolls, but often just voters. You voted in the past, the election's coming up, we need to meet with you, we need to talk to you, we need to explain to you about our own candidate, um, and we need to get out the vote. And I think what Stacey Abrams was able to do was to find people who hadn't voted, right? To say, actually, those people who hadn't voted and who were maybe felt disconnected from the entire process. Like, why why, why the fuck should I vote anyway? It doesn't mean anything. These people don't represent me. Whatever the reason, uh, which you see a lot in poor communities, nothing ever changes. These people come up here. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. And I think what they were able to do was to really do that really good grassroots ground game, but by focusing on people who, who were not on lists. So a woman that I know who um, 
uh, was homeless. Her name is Kukithia, and I was helping her with some stuff this year. You know, she voted for the first time as homeless woman who's probably 45 years old and super proud. Everybody cheered for her when she voted, like getting people into a system who, you know, who used to believe that there was no point in them voting is amazing. And and to put the time and the effort and the resources into that, I think is really remarkable. Like that's truly moving the needle. And there are lots of people trying to do a similar thing on the Latino side as well, not just finding those voters who we know are reliable Democratic voters or Republican voters and getting them out, but actually saying there's a whole bunch of people here in this community who don't vote at all. Why is that? Often the answer in the Latino community, right, is that it's mixed status. So sort of nobody wants to have anybody official coming by. And so uh, I think really being able to get those folks uh, enthusiastic. And I think Donald Trump helped, too, because I think he really did help get out the vote. I think people felt very motivated and saw the light at the end of the tunnel in Georgia, that if they really did turn out, that they could make a change, a change that would affect Georgia, but maybe more importantly, also affect the U.S. Senate as a whole and and affect uh, kind of the next four years. So I think it's pretty, pretty interesting. And I think it's um, I, I think she's amazing. I don't know what she'll do next. I hope she gets to do whatever she wants to do. And I hope what they really do is share uh, a lot of the. Um, the Because I think that's a, a, a real magic that a lot of communities could use. I don't think a lot of these states that are red states are red states. I think they're gerrymandered the hell out of them. And I also think that, you know, they people who live in a lot of those states just don't feel like they should bother. Um, but, you know, lots of states that we think of as being mostly white people are actually quite diverse. And a lot of working people, a diverse working people live in those states. I think the right person reaching out and figuring out how to do a good ground game to really make those people enthusiastic, especially around a candidate who I don't think people were super, super enthusiastic about. I don't think people are super enthusiastic about Joe Biden. I don't think, um, I, I'm glad that he won. He was certainly my candidate, but but I don't think there was some like over, and you could see it in all the the, the, the outcome of the races. As But as it, when it came down to Biden versus Trump, people thought clearly, uh, obviously a much better candidate, much better choice for America. So uh, I don't know what she'll do next. I think she wants to be governor of Georgia. And I think that would be pretty amazing down the road. Yeah, well, I would be there to support her. That's for sure. Um, you know, because that was one of the things that Trump and in the campaign in 2016 did very well. What he saw was that there was this whole disenfranchised group of people in America that were really sort of angry because politics were passing through their front door. And they were not a part of it. And then he comes up with with terms, right? Like little Marco, right? Sleepy Joe, um, you know, crooked Hillary, et cetera. Lying, you know, crooked Michael, whatever. What he did is he referred to them as the silent majority. So if you just look at how he does things, right? Silent, not really a great word to describe somebody, but the majority, meaning in terms of large numbers and strength. And what he did is, he emboldened them to come out and through, of course, the way that they used Cambridge Analytica and other you know, forms of social media. He was able through the Internet to bring these people in. Now, my opinion, that's a one time that's a one time pony trick. And I don't think it's going to be able. I don't think anybody will be able to duplicate it, which is why Stacey Abrams impresses me so much, because I am a firm believer that grassroots organizations and these movements are really the future to 
bringing in the collective silent majority and showing them. So now the Democrats have this great opportunity under Joe Biden. They have a great opportunity to be a party for everybody, right? So you're going to be able to take all of those sort of uh, independents, and there are a lot of them. Now, they may be registered as Republican. They may be registered as independent, but they really don't care whether they're voting for someone who's Republican, independent, or Democrat. They just want the best person. And finally, if the Democrats could now show that we are the party of the people, that we're here for everybody, not just, again, our base supporters. I believe that it's going to be very difficult for the GOP to rebound from Trumpism, because I believe that Trumpism is the scourge. And, you know, as far as you brought up, like, like Latinos, can you explain to me what the hell happened, especially with Cuban Americans in Florida? I mean, WTF on that one. No, no. Cuban Americans in Florida are very different than Cuban Americans in New Jersey. And so, listen, Cuban Americans are extremely conservative. My, my mom was Cuban. Um, my grandmother lived uh, in uh, Union City, New Jersey. So she was one of the New Jersey Cubans. Uh, but we grew up, I grew up in Long Island. And, um, and you know, it's very different. And Cuban Cubans are very, very conservative. Miami Cubans are conservative. So I wasn't surprised by that. I I'm curious to see the generational breakdown, which I haven't seen, um, but uh, but I was not surprised by by Miami at all, not even a little. Yeah, I, I was very surprised, to be honest with you. You know, my grandmother was born in Buenos Aires, and um, I mean, I have many friends who are Cuban and reside in Florida, and we would get into these debates, and I would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Are you kidding? I mean, this is a man who's disrespecting, forgetting about the fact he disrespected all Mexicans, right? Because they're all rapists and drug dealers and so on. But there are a few who are good people. He did the same thing with other with other groups. I mean, with with blacks, he did the same thing with with Jews. I mean, he does it all the time. He is just, as I had said when I stood before Representative Elijah Cummings, Donald Trump is a racist, and there's no other way to describe it. But, Sully, Dad, I'm really quite interested in how the media likes to portray the Trump voter by doing those painful profiles, right, in rural county diners as a slice of life report and snapshot of America. In juxtaposition, there's been calls today, partly in jest, right, but partly accurate, now that Georgia has firmly flipped, that for there to be an African-American equivalent of that profile, if you would, discuss with me what's happening with these tongue-in-cheek tweets and how it speaks to the larger issue of how we properly frame the power and importance of today's black voters. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly the point. And they're like tongue-in-cheek Kind of, sort of, uh, because, you know, the New York Times cannot help itself no matter what happens. It's always. But what do Trump voters think about this? Let's go check in on the Trump voter. And I think they've done themselves and I think they've done the country a disservice with their coverage because they don't want to dig into uh, voters, black voters, certainly in the way that they've always wanted to dig into Trump voters, understanding the Trump voter. If I need to read another profile about understanding the Trump voter. And sometimes I think understanding the Trump voter is not all that hard. Uh, I don't think it's some big secret. I think some people find appeal uh, in racism and and what they like to say, you know, 
calling it as it is and says those things that can't be said, although some of those things are just bigoted, racist things that good people don't say out loud because they know they'd be censured if they said them out loud. So I think some of it is pretty basic. Um, but I, I it was said jokingly because you're not going to see coverage in the New York Times of you know yet another profile. How exactly did Georgia go down? We speak to Jamal and, and you know and three other black guys about you know what exactly happened. It, it's uh, you know it's it's very frustrating. It's very disappointing. I often am disappointed in the New York Times coverage. Black voters have really begun to recognize their power if it's leveraged. And I think you've seen that a lot. And I think we're going to continue to see it if the Democratic Party is smart enough to do. As you say, I think absolutely the whole point of being elected in this country is that you represent even those people who didn't vote for you, get your hard work and get your empathy and get your sympathy and get your attention. And and you should be working for those people, even if they did not support you. I think you also need a president who's going to confront some real issues around race and class and privilege. I, I think if you look at the Capitol right now, if that had been a, a how many thousand Black people, who some of whom are armed, storming the Capitol, I promise you, you'd have dead bodies on the Capitol. That would never have happened. I've seen Black Lives Matter protests that were peaceful protests that, that had more police officers and a, a line of officers in combat gear many people thick, right? So the idea that uh, a protest that was planned and talked about on social media, we all knew it was going to happen, right? Uh, it wasn't like it was some surprise, a secret meeting. I mean, it was well known. So the idea that the police were not prepared for people who talk about the weapons that they're going to bring, who who talk about being armed, who, you know, so I think we have had tremendous uh, imbalance in justice. And I'm really hopeful for Black voters to continue to feel that there is integrity in a system, and by the system, I mean like a whole political system of America, then you actually need to see people fairly represented, right? Otherwise, everyone just loses confidence. And I think you're right. I think the Trump voter was disaffected and angry uh, and, and felt shat upon and disrespected and sometimes felt like other people of other races were getting ahead. Or I remember doing stories in Maine, uh, and if people would tell me, you know, the immigrants here, they get $10,000 cash in a car, and I would say they really don't. I mean, that's first of all, if that were the case, this town has tons of immigrants. We'd see a zillion new cars, right? But they they don't. That's just not true. But you know, there was this sense from the locals that that immigrants were getting ahead in a way that that these people were not, and they were all struggling. And I hope that we get a president who's going to say, "We're all struggling. Let's figure out how to make everybody who's struggling do better. Let's make." Sure, we you know we fix rural schools and schools that are helping white kids and schools that are helping black kids because often now schools are segregated and 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 make the system better so that people can do better than their parents, which used to be kind of the the symbol of the American dream. So you know I I I don't I think if you continually not fill the wishes of people, you eventually they drop out of the system. And I do think that's what Trump brought. You know, you'd read these profiles of people and they would say, you know, I felt like I belonged to something. When Donald Trump, became, you know, started campaigning, I felt like I belonged to something because they felt like he was calling out and he was saying racist and bigoted things. And they liked it. They often really liked it. Right. Because there's nothing like being a part of a racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic group. I mean, who wouldn't want to join such a group? 
I mean, I would pay my $4.99 to Trump in order to be part of the Trump News Network that supports all of that ideology. But maybe, I mean, maybe it's not called that. Maybe it's called, you know what? You're going to get a guy who speaks his mind. He's not politically correct. He's going to tell you how it is. That's how it's marketed. And that's right. So listen, I I, I have never understood the appeal of Trump. I, I never understood it at all. And I spent a decent amount of time with him as a reporter when I was in New York in the 80s. And I, I really, I, I, I've always just been completely baffled by that. Yep. And shame on him for gaslighting the people and blowing the dog whistle today for them to do what the hell they're doing there in our capital. If you think about it, it's very similar to what happened in Michigan, which he thought was actually pretty cool. Yeah. Right. Here they come out with their flags. They're waving them around. It says Trump on them or MAGA. Right. This is his MAGA Stan army that we talk about all the time on this podcast. Right. These are his people and they're willing to storm the castle to protect the king the man is fucking sick there's nothing else to say the man is fucking sick to his core i don't think he's unhappy with what's happened today listen ivanka trump she later uh deleted her tweet but she tweeted to those people and she basically was saying you know don't use violence but she's called them patriots you know american patriots and then eventually she realized like calling people who are literally trying to be part of a coup to overthrow and replace the government. Maybe you don't want to call those people patriots. And, and they're also fighting with police. So maybe you shouldn't call those people patriots. You know, I'm only surprised by the reporters who are out there today saying, I just can't believe it's happening. I'm like, God, where the actual fuck have you been for the last four years? I do want to ask you this. How do you see the new Democratic Senate majority reshaping with Joe Biden as he chooses right to fill the rest of his cabinet positions? And does Having this majority make it easier for the Biden administration and Democrats in general to hold Trump and his and his cabinet members and those around him like baby boy Jared Kushner and Ivanka and Mark Meadows and others accountable through investigations. Yeah, I think I, I would be surprised if there are not investigations and if there are not steps to hold people accountable. Um uh, James Comey wrote something, I forget where, but I think it came out today about how, you know, nothing should be done with Trump. And I think that's a mistake. I also think Comey's kind of, I'm not interested in his opinion. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I think that the the president, I think President Biden will do what he should do, which is you now allow your people in the Justice Department to decide, right? That's what they're there for. And if they're an investigation merits, you know, people uh, facing charges in some capacity, you know, there'll be an investigation and, and it should go on without sort of a sense of political retribution, certainly if there's if it's worthy of charges. Um, a lot of obviously, as you know, better than anybody, what Donald Trump says, you know, he says it out loud, often on the record and says it like <laughs> on tape. So it's not exactly always like some secret uncovering you have to do. It's often like, oh, he said it out loud uh, on the record or it was recorded. Um I would not be surprised if the family faces uh, charges in some capacity. I think the bigger issue for what the agenda will be, they're not going to have a lot of time, right? I mean, and, and so I hope what they're able to do fast is to help figure out how to get people back on their feet after this pandemic. I think you have to uh, make some big sweeping legislation that's really going to help people, that people can feel, and also give people a sense, you know, in this pandemic, the people who've done the best are, are, are bankers, financiers, had a great year. 
they had a great 2020. Everybody else is struggling and trying to figure out how to, you know, keep their little nascent business alive and afloat. And God forbid you're a restaurateur, you know, you, you've been going on on a, a thread. Um, and so I, I hope that they're able to bring real tangible aid to people so that, you know, people feel like we're on the right path. Because as you know, feeling like you're heading the right direction is sort of probably even more than 50% of heading the right direction, right? You have to feel like you're going a certain way and that it's working. And so I'm hopeful that he's going to do that. Right. But let's not forget, and I'm going to use myself as the example because it's easiest. I do hope, because I, I saw today that Joe Biden announced that he's looking at Merrick Garland yeah. as the attorney general. What a great choice. I mean, I actually was hoping I had said to somebody about two weeks ago when I heard that his name was thrown into the mix because, you know, I still have a few friends in Washington. So I had heard that his name was thrown into the mix. And I was actually hoping that he was going to be chosen because this is a man that will actually step up to the plate. And this isn't politics, as you just stated. This is legitimately about prosecuting somebody who who violated the law and violated it to an extent that they need to be held accountable. So talk about it as an example for myself. When the investigation first started into me with Russia collusion, all predicated off the Steele dossier, which is really a pile of dog shit, right? It's not even worthy of using to light your fire in your chimney because it's absolute garbage. Every one of the 11 allegations raised against me are wrong. But yet they use that in order to continue to look into me and into my life by getting a subpoena for my Gmail account, to have access to my family's uh, iCloud, to get a pen register on all of the phone calls coming in and out of my phone, despite the fact that they had no reason for it. Personally, I'd like to know what that was all about. And I do know that several representatives, congressional representatives, have put in FOIA requests for the file, and they have been shut down especially under Bill Barr. They have gotten absolutely nothing claiming that it's not um, it's not necessary, that they don't need the files and so on. Now, on top of that, let's also then talk about my remand back to prison because I refused to sign a piece of paper, which I actually never refused. I just told them I can't sign it because I would already be in violation because the manuscript had already been partially in the hands of the... Um, of the printer. So how can I sign this? They then told me, of course, to go ahead and to sit, take a seat. We're going to speak to our superiors. This guy, Adam Pakula, reaches out to Patrick McFarland over at Met Metropolitan Detention. They then send it up to who? I don't know. I put FOIA requests in. I finally today got 22 pages from the FOIA office, none of them having to do with the request. Not not a single one. So talk about, you know, with with Donald Trump, this this came straight from the top. This wasn't done by some, you know, some guy over at the RRM over at Metropolitan Detention. This came from Bill Barr. This came from Trump. They they even turned around and said to somebody allegedly a week before, don't worry, Cohen's going back to prison. Right. They violated my constitutional rights. Alan Hel um, Alvin K. Hellerstein, the judge acknowledged it was retaliatory and required that they release me immediately from Otisville and return me back to home. Now, as I'm sure, I mean, throughout my entire ordeal, Donald Trump has been involved in witness tampering, 
in obstruction of justice and a litany of other crimes. And I believe that somebody like Merrick Garland would be the perfect guy to turn around and to, without, not, not partisan, hold him accountable for his actions. And that's what I'm hoping. Yeah, I think that our long tape that was released the other day is not going to be the the only thing that has been taped. I think one thing that always struck me about Donald Trump and all you guys, frankly, who tape each other, right, <laughs> which is an indication of a uh, a true lack of, uh, of of faith in us in in your colleagues doing things in honest and non-criminal ways. So uh, I'm sure that there will be lots to uncover. And I think there's two weeks left until he leaves, and I think he will leave. And at that point, you're going to have a lot of people. I believe I might be wrong uh, because I don't know the inner workings, um, but I think you're going to have a lot of people who've been holding on to documents, who've been you know really sort of just biding their time in order to say, hey, this is what's been going on and I have lots of proof of it. So I, I agree with you. I think there will be investigations. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And I don't know Merrick Garland outside of the fact that he didn't never really made it to being uh, assessed as a Supreme Court justice. Um, but I do know of Anita Gupta who's coming in as the assistant um, attorney general. And uh, there's another woman as well um, whose name escapes me who I know. And I think they're both amazing and very strong on civil rights. Uh, which I think is going to be really important. Right. Now, I just want to clarify. I actually only taped Donald one time, and that was the t the one that came out. And the reason that I taped... Did, did everybody... So tell me this. Over the many years of the Trump businesses, didn't they all tape each other all the time? No. It's an absolute... It's a, it's a lie. It's another misinformation that's put out by the media. Uh, it's not true. People did not tape one another. When you walked into my office, it didn't automatically with a laser kick off a recorder. It's just not true. You know, there are times that I had taped conversations. Most of them were really for contemporaneous note taking so I could engage you in conversation and not sit there with my head, you know, down. And I don't have the best handwriting anyway. So I really wanted to concentrate on the conversation. And that's where most of the um, conversations were. Um, you know, what I can't speak for Stephanie Winston Walkoff and her plethora of tapes. But I do want to go back to what you just talked about, um, about the Georgia phone call tape. Um, you know, coming out and being investigated. Do you think that that Trump Georgia phone call will ultimately rise to an investigation? And if not investigated, um, what about all those that enabled him to break the law, like um, Mark Meadows, his chief of staff? Because I'm asking everyone how we push for accountability for these bad actors moving forward. And don't just sweep this shit under the rug for the moment, right? Like if it never happened, because it did happen. I mean, we've all been a part of that conversation. There is, in essence, no difference to you having held the telephone and listened to it going on or hearing the conversation going on between, you know, all the various different people like Cleta Mitchell, who was on the phone as well. I mean, there are an inordinate number of bad actors here. And I'd really like to finally see some accountability here at all levels. And especially now that the Democrats will control both houses. I'm certainly hoping that there is a lot more that can be done. What's your take on that? Yeah, you know, on one hand, I think some stuff is just going to be left up to <laughs> left up to God kind of thing. Like, Lita Mitchell has resigned from her job. She was, a, I think she was a partner, actually. They just seem to be unaware of what she was doing. Maybe that's not true, but she's now out. 
Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen with Mark Meadows. I, I'm not sure you're going to get accountability. One thing that's always very much frustrated me is that the you know you're you're not going to have real accountability if you don't have the media um, deciding that there are people they don't need to hear from, right? I, I you know I, I think for example Sarah Sanders was always a very odd choice for for me to be that people use her as a source when she's admitted she lied to the media. I mean when people lie, you're kind of like okay that person no longer. I would think doesn't get to you know be a source or be quoted in your pieces. So I, I and I actually have a very uh, low opinion of what I think is going to happen. I don't think the media is going to say, "Oh, we should not have Mark Meadows on as a voice because of the things that he did." We should not hold him accountable to the things that he did. In fact, I think the the, the opposite is going to be true. I think he's going to get a show. I think he'll get a lot of platform. And and as you know, that's that's how it, that's a little bit the story of America. You know, I wish I could point to a, a time when, you know, everybody out of that terrible situation was shunned and never seen again. But I, I, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think Jared and Ivanka will be feted in New York and the people who who, you know, thought they were disgusting and gross will forgive them because it'll be a party and they want access. And you talked about the cult of a of a celebrity and and there'll be good scoop and inside stories. And, and no, so I don't I don't have any real. um hope that that they'll be drummed out of town because suddenly we've all become very disgusted with people who are um, morally abhorrent. I just don't see that happening. So I'm going to disagree with you on this one. I generally try not to, um, but I, I have to disagree with you. First of all, I don't think that Ivanka and Jared come back to New York. Of all of the places that they could have lived, right, they came into a certainly a democratic state, but more more importantly, a democratic city. They are fucking despised here, right? By so many, by so many people, including many of their own friends, right? They want nothing to do with them because they bring they bring a lot of tumult, as we like to say in Yiddish, right? To the table. And they're just not that interesting as people. They're just they're they're really not. And some of the things that they have both done are so opposite of what everybody expected that they were going to do. Now, you know, let me also just say to you, I also disagree that Mark Meadows gets a television show or a radio show, unless it's going to be on the Trump News Network. Look at, for example, Sean Spicer. He hasn't been able to do anything other than put his fat ass in leotards on Dancing with the Stars, right? And work for the RNC, which is nothing more than the graft I mean, that's the location that you put all the outsiders or all the people that became outsiders. So you pay them 15000 a month to shut them up so that they don't talk about Trump and tell what really was going on, you know, inside the West Wing. Uh, on top of that, look at like Kaylee McEnany. I mean, she talk about somebody that lies. Right? She lies every single day on things that, you know, were lies. Like right now, it's nighttime. And she'll turn around. Well, the president says it's daytime, so it's daytime. And not only is it daytime, there's a beautiful rainbow up there. And then she tries to make it glossy. She looks like a fool and she's no dummy. So this goes back to one of our first things we started talking about, how people who are highly educated and incredibly, you know, incredibly bright. Certainly, I think she went to Harvard Law. She may be the dumbest of them all. Because I think her entire fucking career is down the it's down the toilet. And the more that Joe Biden and the Democrats do well for the country, the less grip 
that Donald has on his supporters, the less need you're going to have for the Kaylee McEnany's, the Mark Meadows, the Sean Spicers, the Reince Priebus, who we on this show, he can only be referred to as rancid penis. All right. They have no place in our society anymore. And that's that's my opinion. So so I will I'm going to counter your counter with when uh, Epstein. Oh, I'm sorry. I have to check the rules of the mea culpa uh, thing. Um, OK, yeah, you're allowed to do that. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> so when Epstein got out of prison for pedophilia, for molesting, having sex with teenage girls, his publicist who I knew, threw him a party. I was invited, actually. I did morning TV, so I couldn't go. Um, but I got an invitation. And I did, no one would ever send, like, it never really got to me, got to me, because my assistant would toss out anything that was a dinner, because I was going to bed in the afternoon. But they threw a dinner party for him. And I remember it. And Google that, literally. Go on Google and just Google Epstein dinner party and the quotes and the people who came to his dinner party. This is a man who got, had just gotten out of prison, convicted of sex with minors, right? Like, I, you, who would ever say, like, you know what? I'm going to throw a dinner party for a guy who's a pedophile. Let me see who's going to come. You would think, oh, my gosh, what could be more toxic than that? No one will come. But in fact, lots of people came. A lot. And check out the guest list. Check out who showed up. And read the quotes from those people. It's insane. And so every time I think that, in fact... It won't happen that people will be shunned or turned away. You know, I, I go back and think of that article and I think, and this is a guy who'd come out of prison, right? He'd been convicted. It wasn't a, well, we're not sure or who knows. It's unclear. He had served his time in prison from what we now know. Um, so I don't know. I don't really have a lot of faith in that because because of that story. It's really worth Googling. No, I will. And I would probably bet that the people that showed up to the party are the same people that were on his airplane and hung out over there in Whore Island. That, you know, that's my opinion. So I'd like to switch gears for a moment. And I want to talk to you about disinformation. Even in a post-Trump world, the power, the size, and the scale of the right-wing media ecosystem is not going anywhere. And they will still play a large role in creating and spreading a myriad of falsehoods. Now, chief among them at the moment are those that connect um, to QAnon through its various tendrils. That's what has propagated the Dominion voting lies and a host of other false stories that people just keep repeating over and over and over again. Now, as a journalist, how do you think we put the lid back on the Pandora's box? Because just reporting the truth and being accurate is no longer enough. We are at war with a massive, well-funded propaganda machine. Discuss this with me. Yeah, you know, I think it's one of the things I'm most frustrated about. I think when people give a platform to a lie, even if they're going to try to take apart that lie, you've already given it a platform and it's problematic, right? So, so if you were doing a show on, you know, is in fact the earth round, you know, we're going to talk to some people who believe the earth is flat. You're automatically opening up an entire platform to people who are going to spread something that we all know is just not true. The earth is not flat. And so I've been very troubled by reporters, especially who often quote things, sometimes from Donald Trump, sometimes from others uh, in his circle that are just not true, that are just lies. And it's like you can't quote lies 
It's just not, it's not how you should be dealing with misinformation and dis, you should not elevate lies. I find it really problematic. And it's an indication, I think, of how unprepared journalists are to deal with misinformation and disinformation. I think you really genuinely cannot figure out how to deal with it. So yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think it's a huge problem. I think it's well-funded. I, I think um, the only thing that could happen, which is what you saw in Dominion, right, is suddenly everybody was backing down when Dominion made it clear that they would sue, right? Because suddenly it became defamation and legally it, it could be a big challenge. And suddenly you were listening to these very convoluted, now we're going to, you know, I mean, listening to Lou Dobbs, I think it was Lou Dobbs doing the most awkward, you know, trying to clean up the mess that he had made. So, um, you know, I, I, I think maybe that's going to be the, the path of resistance in a way is going to be people who, um, who just decide that they're going to have to sue to make sure that anybody who's, who's, you know, propagating misinformation and disinformation to some degree be stopped. But I think reporters are really challenged by this. This year, this whole entire administration has been a very bad time for that because reporters have not really ever had to deal with a president who's an overt, consistent, chronic, total bullshitter. Uh, I think Trump, you know, and I think, and I, I have a person who's interviewed a million people who are exaggerating, fabricating, implying, making some stuff up, making themselves look better, whatever, you know, but, but outright, full-on, provable bullshit. I think that's a bit unusual. And I think that's been hard for reporters to deal with. And, and I think they've dealt with it very poorly in many cases. Yeah, I think in more than many cases. I mean, what do you do as a journalist, for example, when you have somebody calling in a story, which, of course, is generally how a lot of the tips were leaking out of the White House? And let's say they turn around and they say that Soledad O'Brien is six foot seven and she's going to be playing for one of the WNBA, you know, the Liberty, as an example. She's coming back to New York and she's playing for the Liberty. But then you get two people who will acknowledge that, yeah, it's true. And the reporters now turn around and say, wait, 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 I have two sources that are confirming this sort of thing. Now, in that specific example, as ridiculous as it all is, right, because you're, you're not, anybody who would meet you would say, well, she's not six foot seven, right, or six foot 11 or whatnot. Right. But what if it's something that you can't easily identify? And then you have two people like Corey Lewandowski and David Bossy, who were notorious for leaking stories for their own benefit. Right. Or for the benefit of Trump, because they had to kiss his ass 24 seven to stay relevant. And as a journalist, you now have you've done your due diligence. You've done your your you know, what's your responsibility? You've now sourced it by two different people. Now, what do you do? Yeah, I think, and part of the challenge, I think, for journalists also has been, um, even if they know it not to be true, they tend to say, well, some people say Soledad 6-7, others disagree. You know, let's discuss. <laughs> you're like, right, but now you're giving a platform to a thing that is, and obviously this is a silly example, but it's just not true. And so I think it's one of the biggest challenges that reporters haven't been able to to figure out. Reporters have frequently said, you know, Trump has a change in tone. It's like really not. He really, I mean, and, and anybody who's covered him since the 80s is well aware he hasn't had to change in tone. He hasn't had to change in tone since the 80s. You know, this idea that, you know, he he changed his mind on the golf course or this thing happened here or he's became presidential tonight. All those things are just a, a certain amount of laziness from reporters who want to 
buy into it because a narrative shift in what helps you kind of tell the story the next day, right? You're on, having been on the air many times for many hours. Sometimes you need the like, oh, there's a turn in the story. There's a shift. Here we go. New thing. Uh, and so I, I think it's been very disappointing. And it's just, it's really sad. It's very sad to see it. I, I don't know how you fix it short term, to be honest. I really don't. I really don't. Yeah, a lot of it also has to do with profile. They want to get the clicks. They want to get the acknowledgement. They're trying to beat out the blogger and so on. You know, but something just dawned on me. I truly also believe that a lot of what happened today at the Capitol is because of things like Instagram uh, or Facebook, where people want to post. Well, what better than posting me running into the Capitol with an AR-15 in Washington, D.C.? Hey, look at me, right? I'm a fucking rebel without a cause. I'm holding a MAGA thing. And their group likes it. You get a heart. And so, oh my God, did you see I got 550 likes on this? Look how fucking popular I am, right? Meanwhile, you're going to get a Secret Service guy who's a marksman shoot you right in the fucking forehead, right? So that you could, I mean, look at some of the stupid things that people do in order to get a selfie. That's what I think a lot of this was about because there is an inordinate amount of video and photos right now on the internet of all of these various different people, right? Running and charging and marching and screaming and cursing at the Secret Service and the DC police and so on. You're putting law enforcement in danger for the purpose of a fucking selfie, right? This is Donald Trump 101. You know, they're not smart enough. There's a picture of a guy who's stealing, I think it's Nancy Pelosi's podium, if I'm not mistaken. And he's like waving at people and it's very clear. Uh, he'll be tracked down in no time. You just, it, there's no question. I mean, it just, that's how social media works. So I don't know. I always appreciate those folks. This whole thing has been so on video. And so in the short term, it'll be messy and scary and awful and disgusting and sad. But in the long term, they'll do like they did in Charlottesville. Who's this person? Do we recognize him? Who's this person? Do we recognize him? Who's this person? And they will. They'll just be able to track it. It, it, it. You could not make it. No one's no one's faces. Very few people's faces are covered because they don't want to wear masks. So, you know, I think I think it's going to be one of those things that in the long run actually becomes very helpful in getting all those folks uh, brought to some kind of justice, because what they've done today is very despicable. Yes. But again, the whole point I was making is that some of the reasons that a lot of these people showed up there is not because they believe in anything that Donald Trump is saying. It's really all about getting out, trying to live your life the way you used to pre-COVID, and then also getting a selfie in the intro. But, you know, again, solely that is we're now winding down the hour. My, I have a final couple of questions for you here. Because I'd also like to discuss for a moment individuals kind of like Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. Now, he has been criticized by many for debasing the franchise by giving equal time and these softball interviews to people like Ron Johnson and allowing them to air this unsupported allegations that we were just talking about and push the Trump narrative. Is this much ado about nothing or have people like Chuck Todd crossed the line by giving credibility and airtime to these cranks? Yeah, on one hand, you know, it's not. It's not life and death, so it, uh, but I don't think it's much ado about nothing. It's somewhere in between. I think it's always a mistake, whoever you are, whoever you are. It's a mistake to give, to elevate a lie. It's a mistake to get people who are conspiracy theorists 
a platform. It's just a mistake. You just shouldn't do it. And and I think any reporter who does it and they do it because they want to see if they can get ratings, there's lots of opportunities and ways to tell stories that don't require you to give a platform to people who are going to spew misinformation. And I think that's a very low bar generally for journalism. Like it's not, that's not a big stretch. That's not a big thought. <laughs> that's like kind of basic for what we do. Uh, I think um, I think many people are challenged on that front and it's been very disappointing. It's been a very disappointing and disheartening couple of years for me, I think, watching journalists. Who's the worst offender in your opinion? Oh gosh, you know, there's a lot. Um, it's not really the worst offender, it's the worst way to be offensive is to give people a platform. The hard, worst thing is that you quote tweet somebody. The president says, uh, the votes show I've won the country. And you're like, but the votes don't show that. Why are you elevating that tweet? Or just add, the president says erroneously, quote, like why elevate a quote that you know is not true? We all would agree that the courts agree. That is a lie. The, you know, and, and so it's very problematic, I think. Um, I think it's just that that that's the, the worst offensive thing to do is to just elevate shit that's not true. But Twitter has now actually done that. They put a tag underneath those tweets. And it's interesting. It says that this is not verified and it's and it's been stated to be false, which I think is at least a beginning to some things that they should have been doing all along. But for me, when I asked you that question, who do I think is the worst offender? I think papers like McClatchy are the worst offenders when it comes to, at least to me, because even though, and this bothers me the most about the journalists, they, they make a statement about you. They don't even have the respect for their own profession to turn around and to call and say, Mr. Cohen, Michael, is this true? Were you, were you in Prague? Because you're saying that you weren't. They don't even do that. And sometimes what they do now, there are these programs that I can dial your number and that it automatically, before you even pick up, goes to your voicemail so that now they can go ahead and they can make the statement that we reached, but there was, but we, we were unable to get a comment. That's how fucking disgusting that McClatchy is, right? And they keep doing it, whether it's my cell phone banged off of a cell tower right outside of Prague and Czechoslovakia, right? I've never been there. I mean, that's been, that's proven by the FBI and by every law enforcement agent, including my testimony, right, before five or six or seven different congressional hearings. I've just never been there. I never bought a kayak. I never put the kayak in the Hudson River and kayaked my ass to, you know, to Czechoslovakia, right? I never flew to Germany. I've never been to Germany and took a yacht, which I'm not even sure you can take a yacht from Germany to Czechoslovakia into Prague. I don't know if they ha even have a waterway that works that way. I just don't know what they're talking about. But then you get two people who will confirm it, Corey and, and Dave Bossy or others, right? And all of a sudden there's a story and that they don't retract. That's another problem. They hit you with this tidal wave of misinformation. And once it's out there, there's no way to pull it back anymore. We're living in a very different world. And I've seen it because, you know, at 54, going to be 55, when I was a kid, there was no posting. There was none of that. This didn't come about until I was about 30, right? Now, all of a sudden, we have a real serious problem because whatever's said about you, 
exists forever and ever. And the more it gets picked up, the more people keep retweeting it and re putting out this misinformation. And this is a Donald Trump stunt. I talk about it in my book, Disloyal, all the time. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the flip side of elevating something that's not true, right? Because suddenly it becomes a fact just by the fact that someone has raised it. You know, the well, so when did you stop beating your wife, Senator? Becomes, oh, well, you know, <laughs> ergo, we all must believe that he's been beating his wife. I mean, it's very problematic. So I, I don't disagree. I, I think it's, I think the media has just not really caught up with or figured out exactly how to deal uh, at this era with a president like Donald Trump, who mercifully only has two more weeks left in office uh, at a time when also social media as a way to work around, you know, the you don't you don't need the media as much. Right. As long as you have a lot of followers and you have a you have a mouthpiece, you you you. You don't you don't need to be friendly with someone in the media or have them, you know, tell your story the way you want it told if, you know, all the time now. And I think that's a big change as well. I mean, I'm sure you were a source for people in, you know, who are reporters, right? They call you up and they'd say, Michael, so I'm not going to use your name, totally anonymous, but I need you to and you would and you would give them information and you would frame it to make yourself look good. Because, of course, that's what we all do. I mean, very rarely have I been a source, but even a few times I've been a source. And there's a bit of a quid pro quo, right? There's, there's, it's, it's access journalism. They get access to you. And if, as long as they treat you well, you're going to continue to give them information, right? And, and every so often they're going to do a glowing little note about you uh, in something when they can. And I, I think that's very problematic. I, I think Abanka gets a lot of that treatment. I think she's a source for a lot of people. So you often have in articles it written, you know, that Ivanka and Jared had no idea about children being held in cages. And Ivanka and Jared had no, well, let me promise you where that comes from. That comes from Ivanka and Jared who are trying to clean up some stuff. And so I think, I think that's that kind of access journalism. If you're feeding me information and I'm taking, you know, and I'm writing it down, but I'm, I'm never going to say anything bad about you because I need to keep you as a source, not just this year, but next year and next year and next year. I'm going to make sure that I'm helping you as well. It's a bit of a quid pro quo. And I, I find that very troubling and very disgusting. And I think the New York Times, in addition to doing nine zillion profiles of Trump supporters, uh, so I'm looking forward to all the Black people they're going to be profiling over the next couple of years. Uh, in addition to that, I think the access journalism is really problematic. I think the question becomes, if you are a source for somebody, do they frame you nicely in their pieces? I must know. 50 or 100 journalists, some as long as 23 years, others, you know, 10 months, 12 months, right? But many of them, you know, refer to me in very ugly and, and in hideous ways. And, you know, look, if it's true, I'm willing to deal with it. If it's not true, well, then I have a problem with it. And then I just don't take their calls anymore. If they are treating you nicely because you're a good source, right? So what you're describing is someone who needs multiple sources to go with the story. That's great journalism. I fully support that. The issue that I have is when clearly, and I'm sure I, I have to go back and read what people were writing, but if there's somebody who was a, you were a source for, you were constantly calling them saying, let me tell you this, let me tell you that, let me tell you this, right? And they were reporting it. And they would protect you in their writing, right? That's access journal. They get access to you. And there's a quid pro quo from that access. That access is, he's he's a friendly. We're not going to turn around next week and do a mean story on him because he's a source. I need to protect him, 
that's the thing I have a problem with. I think it's very problematic. And I, I think you can see it in a lot of reporting where people, you know, you know, uh, every time there's an Ivanka clearly is the source for a lot of reporters, obviously. And then at the middle of the article or to the end, we hear that Ivanka and Jared had no idea that Trump was going to do such and such, right? Like, I, I, I'm, I promise you, that is because she's a source for this article. And, they, and the only thing that she's asking, right, the only thing I need to do is make it very clear that don't, don't say I was a source and make sure that everybody understands that I had nothing to do with this crazy fucking policy that my, my dad put out. I get it. That's how it works. And the beauty is people like yourself and myself and virtually anybody with half a wit to them is reading it. And they're like, OK, Ivanka's the source. And yeah, she was fucking there and behind it. So it doesn't do them any good. But solely that I want to thank you so much for your time, for your insight, um, you know, for joining me today. And I really do appreciate it. Sully, that you're a great interviewer, and thank you so much. Nice to chat with you. Take care. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. 